This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at BurnsClan. Follow at your own risk. And I am joined today by the Vice President of The Witness and also the host of the Combing the Roots podcast. Y'all know her. She is back. Allie Henny. Allie, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be back. Listen, people were beating down my door, emailing me, texting me, calling me, meeting me. Uh, trying to interrupt my life to tell me that I need to have you back on the podcast. So that is why you are back on PTM, Ali. You dropped the mic last time. There's just no other way to put it. <laughs> wow, that's I've always heard you say that. I'm always like, really? People wanted to hear me ramble again? Okay. Listen, I, I cannot count the number of DMs and messages and tweets and all kinds of things that I've received. So Thank you so much for your service and for your your unflinching, unwavering voice. I think so many people were liberated by it on our last episode. And we have another episode today. Listen, before we get into today's episode, let me just say thank you all for your patience. Obviously, you know, Jamar just released a book. We are navigating all these things. And so thank you for your patience over the past couple of weeks. But Ali is going to make sure, and I'm mentioning Ali because she holds us accountable. Ali's going to make sure that we get back to a regular release schedule every single Monday, you'll be able to look forward to an episode. I know this one is coming out a little bit later in the week, but every single Monday, you'll be able to look forward to an episode. And Ali will tell you, she always is texting us. Where's the episode? Where's the episode? Where's the episode? Listen, y'all, it's coming. It's coming. Okay. Ali, it's coming. All right. <laughs> so, good, good. That's, I'm just, that's what I'm here for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I, I, we have been talking about something internally as a team that we want to zoom out and talk a little bit more about briefly today. And this is the idea that we've been talking about how important it is for Black Christians to tell our stories. And when we say tell our stories, we don't just mean the stories that everyone knows, but we also mean the untold stories, the stories that are hidden, the stories that are beneath the surface, the stories that are less obvious. And this is so important because if we don't tell our stories, who will? And if we don't highlight things that others do not know and really fellow Black Christians may not have been aware of, who is going to tell those stories for us and who will know about them? Uh, obviously, coming up in, in later on this week, actually, is a documentary um, entitled The Black Church. It's uh, by Dr. Henry Louis Gates, and it's telling some of these stories. But even in a four-hour documentary, which is probably going to be incredible and great, and we hope that more of our tradition is, is shared and is seen by our fellow Black Christians and then the broader society, there is still a necessity for us to tell our own stories. And one of the things that we have felt is so important is that if we tell the stories, the untold stories of the past, it unlocks an unlimited or unrestrained future for ourselves and our children and generations to come. 
So we want to, over the next 10 months, uh, you know, even to the end of the year, periodically tell some stories that maybe have not been heard. And we want to speak today from our tradition. And so Ali and I, as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you know we are serious Pentecostals. <laughs> you know, we love that. That is our heart. That is our tradition. That is our heritage. And it wasn't always something that I personally claimed proudly and boldly on past the mic and in public forums. But if you listen to cultural artifacts, I've been on this journey and I have been excavating parts of my story that I believe are so important now to my discipleship and development. And so we want to talk a little bit about our Pentecostal upbringing. And the reason this is brought up is because there was a very prominent Pentecostal figure who passed away over the weekend. And I want to talk about him and his anti-racism. But before we get into that, Ali, the Pentecostal journey, tell me a little bit about this, because I think people, there are going to be some people who are unfamiliar with this, but then there are going to be some people who may be matriculated into Reformed theology, Baptist church, Presbyterianism, but they came from a charismatic Pentecostal upbringing. Talk a little bit about your journey. So I was um, actually raised in the Baptist tradition. Um, Well, I wasn't raised in the Baptist tradition. I think probably like evenly split between the Baptist tradition, the Black Baptist tradition and the Pentecostal tradition. So I had started out um, in a Black Baptist church, rural church. And um, whenever I think I was probably about um, 11 years old, 12 years old, um, my family had decided to stop worshiping at the um, Black Baptist Church in my hometown, and there was there were some different things that were that were going on, and my mom was just sort of like, "Yeah, I'm not really sure that I want to do this anymore," mm-hmm. and so we had actually had um, stopped going to church and hadn't been going to church for a while. And then my mom um, went to a funeral of someone in um, a neighboring town in in the town where she grew up and she had met a pastor um, and they were, they were talking and she, she really liked him and everything. And so he invited her to go to his church, which was in another um, small town that was that was near where I lived, and so um, we got in the car and we went. We drove the the forty minutes to this other town um, to go to this church. And so the one thing that I have to say with this is that my stepdad uh, was Pentecostal and was raised Pentecostal, and so whenever he, um, whenever him and my mom got together. Um, he kind of was talking about Pentecostalism some to her and my mom was just like, um, my, my stepdad was from, is from Jamaica. And so, um, mm-hmm. he was talking to her about, about, um, Pentecostalism or whatever. And my mom was like talking about like snake handlers and this type of stuff, like how she had right. seen and every, right. my mom was like the type of person, everything like, you know, anything that is like horrible in the world she saw it on 2020 um the abc show 2020 she's like, I saw, <laughs> yes, like something yes. on, on 2020 about like the safe handlers and people drinking bleach blah blah blah, blah. and my stepdad was kind of like uh yeah that that's not quite what this is but okay but i was like blah, blah, blah. like i know i'm not going to one of those pentecostal churches blah 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 and my stepdad's just kind of like okay that's not quite what that is but go off and so she was just like <laughs> you know av- like like averse to going to a pentecostal church so she had met this pastor and we had gone to this church. And as soon as we rolled up to the church, like I see like 
oh, this is a Pentecostal church. Okay. And so um, it was actually my, my mom, my stepdad and I, and then um, my aunt and one of my cousins in another car. So we, so um, I, whenever we all got out of the car and we're walking to the church, um, my cousin, um, who's three years older than me was like, oh no, they probably gonna be speaking in tongues in here. And I was mm-hmm. like, it's mm-hmm. like the way that she said it, like, like it was just like really you know, super ominous and whatever. And I'm like, I had no idea um, like what any of it was. I mean, I had some maybe conception of what speaking in tongues was, but I was just kind of like, oh my goodness, is it like, like what's going to happen in here? And so we went and I mean, it was pretty much just like the church that I had grown up in. And so like, I'm, you know, I'm like looking yeah. around like, like, okay, well, like, are they going to bring the snakes out? Like, what are they going to, like, is somebody going to start drinking bleach? Like, are people going to start like falling on the ground? Like, what's, right, like, what's right. going to happen? And so we, we went, it was, it was just like the church that, that we, it was almost exactly like the church. Some of the songs were different, but it was the, it was the same style, everything of the Baptist church that I had grown up in. And so we had gone um, a couple of times, I think, and then one time as we pulled up to the church, my mom saw the sign and like saw Pentecostal on the sign and was just like, Oh, <laughs> and so it was like, she had like, she had real, like, like it was just, I think that God just had like kind of shielded her <laughs> from, <laughs> yeah. but like God just did yeah. not let her see the word Pentecostal on, on that sign. Um, because I mean, there's, there's like really no way that you could miss it, but she was, mm-hmm. but just, I think that God was just like, no, you're not going to see this. And so after we'd been going for a little bit, then she was like, Oh, okay. And so by that time, you know, we, we had been going, she felt like that, that it was a good, that it was a good place to go. And so we went um, from that to that church. Um, from the time I was like 12, almost 13 until, um, I graduated, I went until I graduated high school. So within all that, um, you know, I've been going and you, I was, I was in middle school and middle school is just always kind of like a real kind of weird time for people. But I wasn't, I was just kind of even kind of in a weird time kind of in my faith, you know, knowing like I knew, I knew God, I believed in God, it was whatever. Um, but, you know, these, it was Pentecostal. So it was also, it was also you know, holiness Pentecostals too. So, you know, they're like, they're oh, yeah, like, that's a different level. And yes, that's a whole yes. different level. And so they weren't like, they didn't really like preach a lot of like, I've been in, I've been in subsequently have been in like some, some white holiness Pentecostal spaces where like the preaching is like really like, and and you're like, Oh, okay. So like, you're not allowed to have fun. Okay. They, they didn't really do that kind of preaching at the church that I grew up in, but it was still just like very much like, you know, like wanting, like, like wanting, like pushing you to, to live for Jesus and like, you know, don't be in the world and, and don't be like you drinking, smoking and like whatever. We used to sing this song called like this claim, this train's a clean train. And like, it Mm. would like, it would go through all these things. Like, you know, you know, like this train's a dream. I can't talk. This train's a clean train. This train and it'd be like you know, they'd be like this train don't carry no liars you know this train don't mm-hmm. carry no gamblers oh they would call it a roll this train don't carry no stealers <laughs> this train don't carry no liars like like they would go through like the whole so it would like build up so they'd be like this train don't carry no liars and it's like and then it'd be like oh gosh and so you'd be going through like everything like no gamblers no stealers i'm like wow wow okay and so and people would like you know clap and sometimes people would march around the church and it was it was just it was a lot fam so yeah, I just wasn't, I was, I just wasn't really sure about like, oh, okay. So like, I, like, I can't ever tell a lie. Not that I think that lying is bad, mm-hmm. but it's just like, you know, 
or that that lying is good excuse me um it's not that that i wanted to tell lies so i'm just like oh my gosh i'm not gonna like go to heaven like jesus is gonna kick me off of the clean train if i if i tell a lie and so it was just it was just like really super intense and i just wasn't really sure about like do i really want to live for jesus like that hard and you know they'd be like oh you can't go to the club on on saturday and be in the church on a sunday and i'm like and at this point you know, i'm in middle school but i'm like but what if i want to go to the club like let's talk about the club like it like, was that bad like, i'm like, what's well, I'm like what's, because i mean i didn't know i'm like like what's happening at the club why can't you what because i mean i do i i had i had you know older older cousins and 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 you know older sister and everything that that were of that age and i'm just like what do you mean we can't we can't go to the club? What do you what do you mean? What do you mean we can't dance? What do you mean? What do you mean? Like like how is that how's that not how's that not how's that not sanctified and holy? I mean, I didn't I didn't know nothing. But anyway, so I was just really kind of resistant to it, sort of like I mean I went, you know, I played drums and stuff at at the church, but I was just really like, I'm not too sure about this stuff. And then um you know, I received the the baptism of the spirit whenever I was uh fourteen, going on fifteen, and I was still wow. just like mm-hmm. Ooh, I'm not sure about this. Like, okay, that like 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 the the experience was great, but like just I'm like, okay, you know, I felt God like calling me, like you, know, I gotta live for Jesus. So I'm thinking like, of living for Jesus is like, I've got to just sit and I I can't. I have to read my Bible all the time and I got to do like all this other stuff and like I don't even I don't even know what I what I thought really, mm-hmm. but I was just really like kind of scared. And so through high school, I kind of found myself running through Jesus. And I guess the other thing that I'll say about this is that I came into Pentecostalism right around the time. Um, so it would have been like you know, 1998, 1999, 2000. So right in like that Y2K bucket, mm. like right whenever. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Oh, yeah. yeah we got we to gotta talk. We got to talk about that. But like right in that thing where like people. But like where, where there was this moment, where there was this moment where what I was hearing in my church, which was which was similar maybe just to what was being said other spaces, but not at the same time, where it was like you know Jesus Jesus could come back and like you know, people telling testimonies about like like no like like you know, Jesus coming back, and so I wasn't like I didn't have like. Um, I wasn't like terrified of the rapture. Like I don't have, like, I know a lot of people, you know, have like this complex about like the rapture and like, and like, you know, eschatology and they're, and they're, and they've been really, really harmed and, and traumatized by it. I don't have that necessarily, but I remember as a teenager um, being like, oh my goodness. So, so like, you know, Jesus comes back, like, am, am I going to go? And like, not, and like not right. knowing. And There's just that kind implicit of, fear. Yeah. yeah. And it was just kind of like, hmm, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to go And there. And there definitely was, I mean, I remember like having a dream where I was like, where the rapture was happening. And I was like, oh man, I don't think I'm going to go, but I wasn't, I wasn't traumatized by it. Like I, I kind of look back at it and, and laugh now because it, I think it was a lot of it was wrapped up in Y2K. A lot of it was wrapped up in a lot of this other stuff that I mean, obviously didn't, didn't happen. Um, but that was just, but that was really interesting, but I found myself kind of, um, kind of not really sure, you know, where, where in my faith, kind of how to, how to live and exist. And then there became a point where, where I embraced it. And so that it kind of formed me and made me who I am today. Yeah. That is so helpful because I think there are so many different streams and I guess, you know, we can talk a little bit about misconceptions as well. But, but there are so many different streams of what we think of as Pentecostal today. And there are so many different iterations of the charismatic church. And I'll tell a little bit of my story, then we'll talk about some, some misconceptions. But I've mentioned it loosely before, but 
you know, this really starts with my father. My father gets saved in a white Pentecostal church, actually during the Jesus movement. He got saved when he was 16. So he grew up in Baptist church and so didn't really understand, you know, some of the the dramatic elements in the Pentecostal space. And so he went to this, you know, Jesus movement meeting with a three-piece suit on. He tells a story and, you know, gets radically saved, you know, gets the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then based upon his salvation experience, goes to a Bible college in Pensacola, moves to where we are now in Pensacola and goes to a white, you know, charismatic Pentecostal Bible college. And so a lot of what we understand about even Pentecostalism has truly been whitewashed. And my dad will even, he'll talk about that often, like how it was only white professors and only a white perspective and all these other things. And so we're going to tie this into anti-racism here in a second. But so he is serving after he graduates from that Bible college, he is serving at a um, white Pentecostal church in the local area as an assistant pastor for 10 years. And so it's completely committed to that. And, you know, we're we're one of, at the time I was probably like one or two, but we're one of only maybe two black families in the entire church. It was a relatively large church as well. And so everything kind of shifts and changes when he gets hooked up with this guy who is known nationally as the great black Pentecostal hope. And I'm talking about a guy named Bishop Carlton Pearson. Now I'm going to save some of my Carlton Pearson stories I have a lot of them um, because we actually knew Carlton Pearson. So I'm going to save my Carlton Pearson stories for uh, another time. But needless to say, we got hooked up with the Azusa Fellowship. And that's how I understood and came into contact with this great Pentecostal expression that kind of morphed a lot of different streams together in one. And so there was a morphing of both the word of faith movement, which people commonly associate with Pentecostalism, but does not encapsulate all of it. Then there was this kind of old time religion, like backwoods Pentecostalism. And then there was kind of this multi-ethnic kind of melting pot of what Pentecostalism actually was, whether it was in, you know, you would hear everyone from, you know, a T.D. Jakes or a Jackie McCullough or... Who else? Um, Kenneth Copeland or, you know, Rod man, Parsley. It could, Rod Parsley. Yeah. So just this mix. That, so it's a little bit of AOG, a little bit of uh, Kojic, whoever didn't make it in Kojic spaces or whoever got kicked <laughs> out of Kojic spaces. And then also all these holiness and also word of faith. And it all came together. And, and it was actually beautiful now that I look back on it even though there was like this sense of theological confusion. I mean, you could have everyone from Donnie McClurkin to, you know, Marvin Winans, even though he wasn't necessarily a part of the same, you know, denominational stream, but you'd have someone like Marvin, Marvin Winans or Vicky Winans or Yolanda Adams or Fred Hammond or John P. Key, of course. And so, but then you would also have these faith teachers as well. And you'd also have this, this kind of push pull in these meetings and so I grew up going to these national conferences, and that's where I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's also the same place that someone like Mike Todd came out of. So a lot of people are not necessarily familiar with that lineage, but the pastor who took over, or the pastor who he took the church over from, Bishop Gary McIntosh, 
is personal friends with my family. And they um, they were basically right-hand people to Carlton Pearson at the Azusa Fellowship. So he kind of comes out of the influence of that Azusa stream uh, as well. And so growing up, there was this idea that we were doing something, and, and it was partially festered by people within the movement, that we were doing something that was so countercultural, but yet so above culture as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So there was like this countercultural element, but then it's almost, almost like we're better than the other Christians. <laughs> we're also mm-hmm. better than, than the world as well. So it was this pseudo sense of, hey, we're living apart from the world, but we're also living better than the world. And I think that's where like TBN and televangelism comes mm-hmm. in because there was this very slick portrayal of mm-hmm. what Christianity was. But in spite of all that, what I've learned to appreciate about that upbringing and learn to appreciate about even how our church was planted and the ways in which our church was a representation of Pentecostal faith in our local area and in our region, I've come to appreciate the fact that Pentecostalism gave me a depth of understanding about God and a depth of understanding about my emotive response to God. Yes and a depth of understanding about what my faith means for my neighbor that honestly, I, I, I still have not, I've not heard any other space synthesized quite like Pentecostalism does. And it's not to say that other spaces don't have it, but I just haven't found that mix. And it's actually something that I stopped running from and started running and running towards and leaning into because there was no other space that could replicate it. So I'll give you an example, right? Um, for us, one of the things that was so important was evangelism. But evangelism wasn't this, yes, there was part of that white evangelical influence of kind of drive-by charity and evangelism, but there was really this sense of being present within a community. And there was really this sense of as we are present in the community, we uplift the community around us. And we also provide practical spaces for community uplift in ways that were a little bit different than the white evangelical education I was receiving in private schools based upon all these other people's conceptions of what an inner city was or what a ghetto was or or what, what the hard areas were. There was a difference. We were a part of that community, even though we were different and even though there was, yes, this big church institution we, we felt like we were a part of, these are our neighbors. And so they're, they're not just people that we reach, but they're people who we know. These are, these are family members, extended family members, even if they didn't come from the same church or go to the same church that we did. And so this sort of richness has rooted me in a way that I only can appreciate now. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more.
even though it's rooted me in that, I'm still fighting these misconceptions in my mind. So let's talk a little bit about the misconceptions. Like, what do you think are a couple of misconceptions that people have about when someone says they're Pentecostal, when someone says they come from Pentecostal faith? What are some of these misconceptions that people have that you've had to fight or internal misconceptions that you've had about your own movement? Wow. So that, that is a, that is a deep question. Um, I think that first of all, there is this broad misconception that, um, Pentecostals, that there's not, that there's not sound theology, that there's, that there's not sound doctrine. Um, there's another kind of misconception that we place an overemphasis on the emotional, again, to, to the detriment of, of teaching, to the detriment of the word of God. Um, there is a conflation of some of the extremes that happen within our movement, within our movement, but any and every movement has extremists. And having traveled um, a lot of the theological spectrum, having been a part of different churches or, or fellowshipping with different people or whatever, there are extremists in in literally every corner of Christianity, yet um, Pentecostalism often gets yes. defined by the extremes. And so, but I'll, I'll unpack all of those things um, here in it for for a moment. So, with the with the um, theology and doctrine aspect. Yes, I do think that there is a very strong anti-intellectual bent that runs through a lot of Pentecostalism just in general, um, but Black Pentecostalism in particular. But I think that that to a lot of people even will dismiss, even Black folks I've heard dismiss certain um, Black denominations or certain Black congregations as being anti-intellectual. And it's kind of like, well, they're anti-intellectual, blah, 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 blah. And I think that 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 while that is maybe true and even maybe fair, I think that often whenever people dismiss this, they don't look at the root of it. And so the root of of the quote unquote anti anti intellectualism that I see is first of all um, being locked out of institutions. So being so being Pentecostal, mm-hmm. something that people don't realize about our history is that. Pentecostals oftentimes were um, put out of the church, put out of their their churches, put out of their their native kind of churches or native uh, whenever the whenever the movement started. I guess is what I'm trying to say is that you had marginalization that um, took place at the beginning of the movement. So you have people who are who are marginalized once, twice, maybe even thrice, maybe even four times. And so what I mean by that is whenever Pentecostalism, the the birth, the recognized birth of Pentecostalism in America was in 1906 at the Azusa Street Revival. And so that was, that was started by a black man um, named William Seymour, who received the, the baptism of the spirit. And it started out in a house on in California on um, Bonnie Bray Street, and it was a group of Black believers. They they were in this house for a while. Um, the people, several people, received the baptism. The meetings started to grow, so they moved to what then um, became known as the Azusa Street Mission, and so that that is what is most often um, associated with the revival. And really, it was just like it was a horse stable. Um, it, the the I don't think that the structure exists anymore. I think that the structure um, burnt down um, a while, not not very long after um, the revival um, went away, but. 
anyway, these people that that were that gathered in these meetings, they came from a variety of backgrounds. They came from from the Methodist Church. They came from the AME tradition. They were Baptist. Um, William Seymour himself, he was Church of God um, Anderson. That's different than the Pentecostal denomination, Church of God Cleveland. Um, they came from a variety of traditions. And so whenever they received the baptism of the Spirit, a lot of those congregations put those believers out. And said and said that they like you can't you can't worship with us because because you speak in tongues and we and we don't believe that that's right. So they were put out of those congregations. So then you have where the movement started off as a multi ethnic movement. It started off with black folks. It extended to Latinos, and mm-hmm. then white people got a hold of it. And then it, people were coming to Azusa Street from all over the world, and this and this experience, this Pentecostal experience, was the, the second blessing, as some people as some people called it, was going all over the United States and all over the world. Well, not very long into that that you had racism show up. And so some of these white believers, um, they decided that it was easier for them um, to worship in their own congregations. Um, So you have like the story of Bishop Mason and the Church of God in Christ and the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God, the the Church of God in Christ actually ordained those pastors who went on to create the Assemblies of God. And so depending on who who tells the story, the the, the facts of the story are that the the Assemblies of God pastors left the Church of God in Christ Mm -hmm. um, over over racism. Now, depending on who's who's telling the story and, and who tells the story and what the story tells, you might actually even be surprised um, to who to who tells what version of the story, um, but there's there's a story that kind of runs. Well, you know these white people they were being they were being persecuted. They were you know it was already they they were already poor already from the wrong side of the tracks, and so they so they decided it was easier for them to um, start their own denomination than to endure like all the persecution that they were that they were experiencing um from from white people for worshiping with black people um there is now been more kind of like yeah there was a lot of racism and these people didn't want to worship with black people they didn't want black leadership and so mm-hmm. that's why they left but depending on who tells on who tells the story what you get but ultimately you have the assemblies of god coming out of the church of god in christ so you have people so then you have black people being marginalized again from white people. So then you also have where, and, and this is a split that we often don't talk about, but you have where um, Trinitarian Pentecostals were separated from oneness Pentecostals. So you have oneness Pentecostals being marginalized again from, from the rest of kind of mainstream, mainstream Pentecostalism. And so I make, I say all that to make the point that you have people that, that were then that, that with each subsequent marginalization, you get locked out of institutional power, institutional influence. You you don't get to. It, it takes it takes you know years, um, sometimes decades to have Bible colleges to to build uh, training centers to do all these other types mm-hmm. to do all these other types of things. So, but within that, you also have, and we can we can call it spiritual pride, we can call it whatever, but you have within that where people are being raised up and they're ministering and they're and God is using them in a in a mighty way, where they just kind of say, you know what, we don't need your institutions. 
we don't need we don't need your book learning because the Holy Spirit can teach us everything. And while I believe that that's that there's true, I think that there's also a need for tradition. That's then there's a whole other um, that's a whole other conversation. But but my main point is that a lot of the quote unquote anti intellectualism it comes from a root of marginalization and it comes from it comes from being rejected multiple times over by the power structure um within within Christianity so you today you right. have even where black pentecostals are still um rejected by white pentecostals are rejected by the rest of Christianity even though we have such a huge influence on the rest of Christianity and it's a whole it's a whole kind of um sorted mess and hopefully I articulated that um somewhat somewhat clearly but yeah and, and to that oh, point ahead. I just want to say you know I'm sorry to cut you off but to that point I I do want to emphasize you know that is true in my case as well because I grew up with our church being a satellite Bible college campus for a, a broader national Pentecostal um, organization. And people in our church and in the surrounding area got trained in biblical theology and, you know, hermeneutics and homiletics all at our church. Like, I mean, I'm talking mm-hmm. about dozens of people but it was it was run through the church. It wasn't run in an organization, an institution, because a lot of people had never had the access mm-hmm. to be able to go outside of their church to receive biblical training. But they were able to in the church house yeah. because they didn't have the access other other places. The access was provided for them. So I think sometimes people think, oh, if you didn't get a, a degree from X Y Z seminary, mm-hmm. that that's the reason, you know, see, it's anti-intellectualism. It's, well, there's training streams you know yes. not of, yes. right? There's there's exactly. training mechanisms that you're not familiar with. Exactly. And to that, and to that point, it's like, it's not, it's not anti-intellectualism. It's somebody said, I don't have, we don't have institutional access. And so we're going to create our own tables and it's going to look different and it's going to look different it's going it's going to sound different and so every so then to the point of well you know pentecostals they don't they don't they don't have sound doctrine they don't have blah 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 it's like you don't you don't listen to pentecostal preaching where i came from especially in pentecostalism and i and i come from um specifically the even the the apostolic um tradition within within pentecostalism it's not something that i that i talk about um a whole lot within that um but there definitely was an emphasis on doctrine there was an emphasis on on the word of God and and knowing the word of God and knowing what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit and being able to go to the Bible and being able to show people why we speak in tongues, why we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, why we why we believe in baptism, why we believe in all these things. It's just that the the doctrinal concerns, the doctrinal emphases, the doctrinal, um, the, the traditional kind of things that are that that people um, care about in Pentecostalism is different than other Christians. And so I think that sometimes people will look and will be like, well, because because you're not emphasizing the sacraments, for instance, well, you're just right. you're not sound yes. theological. Yes, yes. Or because you're low not low church. Being, That's what they call it. Low yes, church. They call it low church. Or because you're not you're not emphasize or some people because because you're not emphasizing the doctrines of grace, well then you're well then you're not you're not theologically sound. You're not whatever. 
but with it, but the, it's something that frustrates me to no end. Um, I, and I think that we've, that we've had this conversation before Tyler, where people have, where people have come at me. Um, I, I think where people come at me specifically, but, but Pentecostalism, um, in general, sort of acting like Pentecostalism doesn't have an interpretive tradition. Like we don't Listen. have, like we don't oh my have goodness. an interpretive tradition, and so it's like, like we, like we don't have an interpretive, a, a hermeneutic. Like we don't have a way of looking at scriptures, and like black people and black Pentecostals don't, and it, and it is infuriating. It's maddening to me because I'm like, because first of all, I have, I mean, I can get on the whole like hermeneutic soup, soup box, soapbox. I can get on the whole hermeneutic soapbox here, but I won't, but I won't do that. But it's, but it's infuriating because it's like just because I don't approach this scripture with the same assumptions that you do doesn't mean that I don't take scripture seriously. I just right. don't see it mm-hmm. the same way. I'm not looking at it through the same lens as you, but it doesn't mean that I take it, that I take it any, any less seriously. And so I think that because yeah. of that, because of that um, people, because we have our own interpretive tradition that again was built in some of those smaller institutions, some of those institutions that we had to create for ourselves, or even in my case, being, being someone who is from a rural tradition, right. where That's a rural layer. church tradition, which is a, which is a whole other, di- which creates whole other different issues of access and ever you are learning under your pastor in your church and I, I have relatives who have who have become ministers in their little rural Pentecostal churches and they and they study and they make you have an aunt who always talks about how how you know she studies the word and whatever it's using completely different tools it's using a completely different a completely different hermeneutic in many ways than what I did whenever I formally went to seminary but that's but but she's she's learned in the word and and yeah. that's cool that's okay it would be wrong of me to be like well you know just because you know you don't you can't read the the the, the greek and the hebrew because you don't know what a, what a weak verb is and because you don't you don't right. understand the the um the the, the genitive and the and the dative <laughs> and whatever it would be wrong for me to be to look at my auntie and look down on her and her and her precious faith and and, and my uncle and his and his precious faith in in talking about the word of God. And when you know what, whenever my uncle starts talking about the Bible and starts talking about the word of God, I shut my master of divinity mouth and listen to him. Hmm. And and like like yeah, no. I have a master of divinity. I can sit and talk and I can and I can whatever, but I shut my MDiv mouth and I listen to my and I listen to my elders speak about yeah. the word of the word of God. I go I, wherever I visit their church. I sit back and I listen to the theology from below. But we 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 can't have that conversation right now. But anyway. Yeah, no, I, I and I want to add to that because I think it's so important to address that misconception and I want to kind of combine my two misconceptions in that together and the first is this idea that we are that many in Pentecostal circles have a man-centered theology. We don't have a God-word, God-centered theology. And then also the second misconception is that many people in Pentecostalism don't care about racism. Okay, so let me address these together because I think it's so important to talk about the ways in which theology is crafted and also the ways in which that intersects with race and culture and religion, all those types of things. So Over the weekend, we got the news that one of the generals in the Word of Faith movement, in the megachurch movement, 
um, in the Black community had passed away from complications due to COVID-19. And that is Apostle Frederick Casey Price or Fred Price. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Fred Price founded the Crenshaw Christian Center. It's a huge megachurch, over 20,000 members. I believe it was in 1973. And he found it in Inglewood, uh, California. So kind of in, it's actually in, I think he used the old Pepperdine University campus and then, you know, translated that into what, what is now called the Faith Dome in kind of the heart of what people think is the hood, you know, South Central LA. And so fair warning here, trigger warning for anybody who is a part of, who is recovering from word of faith spaces. Yes, there's so much to critique about Fred Price. Yes, there's not a wholesale purchase of his theology. And I want to give space to the people who've been harmed, perhaps by those teachings or someone who has said something that insensitively in a moment of pain and weakness and trial um, that has harmed you. So I give space for that. But I want to talk about Fred Price in this particular context, because he was kind of the great black hope before Creflo Dollar was very popular. There was Fred Price. Fred Price was at, at one time more popular than a Creflo Dollar because of the fact that Fred Price had this style that was more, it wasn't just a teaching style. It wasn't just a word-based style of, of communicating the gospel, but it was also a, it had a fiery element to it in a way that Creflo Dollar never really had. Creflo Dollar was more, you know, monotone. I won't say monotone, but he was more subdued and composed in the way in which he delivered his message. But Fred Price had a higher energy, especially in his younger years. And, you know, Fred Price was on TBN, which is this massive Pentecostal, charismatic, word of faith, so many critiques can be had against TBN and class and race and all these other things. But there was something interesting that happened in the mid to late 90s. And it shaped so much of my journey because Fred Price was the first person that I saw on a national scale deal with the topic of racism. And there was a reason why he dealt with the topic of racism that most people do not know. I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes to this article that came out in the early 90s, or um, I, I believe it was 19, actually late 90s, 1999. It was in the LA Times, and it talked about his journey with racism. Now, there's a kind of a godfather, a white godfather of the Pentecostal movement called Kenneth Hagin. His name is Kenneth Hagin. And his son came out with a, it was a message or a private recording or something came out and was released. After Fred Price had kind of learned under Kenneth Hagin and had given hundreds of thousands of dollars to Kenneth Hagin in tribute offerings, and there's so much to talk about the racial dynamics of Pentecostalism, uh, which we can talk about at, at another time. But this this recording came out where Kenneth Hagin Jr., his son, had actually said on tape that he didn't believe in race mixing. Mm -mm -mm. And <laughs> to take it a little bit further that he had taught his daughter from her kindergarten years that she was not to date black men. More. And this recording comes out and Fred Price is, I mean, through the roof. There was a quote in the article where he said, you know, I've been standing next to you for all, he said he thought, I've been standing next to you for all these years and didn't know you had a gun to my head. Mm. And so he challenged 
Hagen Jr. and he said, hey, this is racist. Now, mind you, up until this point, Fred Price hadn't really talked about race ever. People had perceived him to be kind of this Uncle Tom, House Negro figure who was just doing this older white man's bidding and was under his control. Even though he was in the Black community and even though he was trying to uplift Black people and things of that nature, there was just that perception because he had never explicitly talked about race and racism. And if he had, he'd either moved past it quickly or dismissed it or what have you. And... Hagen Jr. didn't didn't recant. He didn't apologize for his comments. And based upon that, this is where I think people people get it twisted. Based upon the fact that 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 was seen, he did not just go along to get along, but he instead launched this massive boycott. And this was huge news in the church. He launched this massive boycott, removed all the financial support from the Hagens. Um, you know, told other people not to buy their books. Um, you know, he. I think there was a building name after uh, Kenneth Hagen at, at at their little complex. It was actually not little, but huge complex at Crenshaw Christian Center, and he took the name down. I mean, this is this is mm-hmm. you know late nineties. I mean, this is serious stuff. Wow. And then he launched this massive. Uh, I believe it was seventy six part series called Race, Religion, and Racism. He didn't launch it privately. This was on national television. So think about this. You're watching TBN. You're used to this word of faith preacher, this black preacher coming on in a mega church, preaching to tens of thousands of people, mostly black, in LA. And then he starts talking about race, religion, and racism. I mean, talking about everything from you know, essentially like what Jamar did with Color of Compromise. This is what Fred Price is doing mm-hmm. for his church, right? Telling them about the history of places in which Black people have been exploited and denied. He, he even told them at one point, there was this quote in his sermon where he told them, he said, I'm, I'm mad as hell. Yes, your pastor is mad as hell. And it's righteous indignation. That's what's moving me. He talked about the Dakes Annotated Reference Bible, which was so popular in Pentecostal circles, how it was racist in its construction and and its inception. I mean, this is groundbreaking stuff, right? Mm. And I, I think people don't understand how much there has been a movement of resistance in Pentecostal circles against racism and against racial hierarchy and against implicit and explicit bigotry. And yes, it hasn't been perfect. And there's so much to unpack about Fred Price's theology. But I thank God that that the first person I saw talk about race nationally was a Black Pentecostal man. Like I thank God for that. I thank mm-hmm. God that he used that platform because I will never forget every single week, it was one of our running jokes. It was like, oh, okay, he's still on that series, race, religion, <laughs> and racism. Like we used to laugh about, it. oh, he's still on that series. He's still on that series. He's still on that series. And, you know, to now see that so many of us are, are continuing that legacy of anti-racism resistance and calling out people, it, it's, it's comforting to know that there were people who had much more to lose than I do who were willing to put that on the line, who had thousands upon thousands of members and huge domes and massive facilities 
and we're, some of us are afraid to send tweets. Like we're afraid, mm-hmm. we're afraid people are going to come at us for tweets, or we're afraid people are going to come at us for articles, or because we say something about racism locally. And there is a history and a legacy that has been hidden from us of black preachers and ministers, women and men who have stood against racism in our own tradition, who have mm-hmm. stood against this crushing weight of white supremacy in our own tradition, and they resisted and they boycotted. And it worked and they still survived, (laughs) you know? And so I think sometimes people forget that much of Pentecostal theology is, it's not, it's not that it's man-centered, but it cares about the lived experiences of, of the people that it's preaching to. It actually cares about the people in the pew and in it at its best, at its best, it cares about us enough to preach an integrated embodied theology an integrated embodied ethic that says, I'm going to speak directly to the situations you're facing, not past you, not just doctrinally and theologically and high-minded just for the sake of proving that I know these things, but I'm going to preach to your lived situation and your lived circumstance. And so I'm thankful for Fred Price's stand. Yes, there are things that, again, I could critique and there's so much um, that we could talk about. But this kind of rude awakening that he experienced about race really shaped me from a young age and the boldness with which he was able to call names and talk about institutions and organize and launch boycotts sounds a lot like the work that I'm doing right now. And so I think there has to be some sort of connection to what I heard from a young age and how that has shaped what I do now. So I think that's a misconception that, oh, Pentecostals, they're just going along with racism. They're just going to over-spiritualize it. And in some cases, that's that's true. Mm-hmm. But there are people like Fred Price and, you know, in today, Dr. Jonathan Alvarado and so many others that I could mention who stand firmly opposed to that idea. Cor- Corletta Vaughn, um, who is a, a, a woman bishop in kind of these Pentecostal circles, who stand against white supremacy and who are unflinching as they do so. So I'm thankful for that part of the tradition. Yes. And, you know, I know that we're running up on time here, but I've got to talk about William C. Morgan. I've got to talk about, I just, I just Please. Have to talk about. I hope him. the black church, I hope the black church doc mentions him because, you know, I hope they don't erase Pentecostals. Anyway, keep going. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, and and speaking of erasure, kind of with it, within this whole thing, William Seymour did something that was so revolutionary in for for his time. Um, the Azusa Street Revival was a multi-ethnic, multicultural space. It was a space where everyone was welcome, and um, something that really frustrates me about the Pentecostal movement and having been, um, again, being part of the, black, of the Black church, but also having spent some time in white Pentecostal spaces, the level at which he and the level at which um, G.T. Haywood, um, Garfield, I think Thomas is, is his middle name, Haywood, um, mm-hmm. who was a Black, um, who was a Black apostolic Pentecostal, the way that they are both simultaneously erased, but then also kind of tokenized, like a lot of white apostolics will um, tokenize G.T. Haywood as somehow like evidence of them not being racist whenever they're whenever they're terribly racist. Um, many of them are, are terribly are terribly racist within their denominations, but 
But uh, back to William Seymour, that revival was multicultural and he was was multi-ethnic. And he was in that space with so many people who would come out to to be racist who would who would leave the the yeah. Pentecostal movement that the movement that he created would go and fracture the movement on the line of race and th- there's a there is a um I can't remember if he said it I, my my brain is not working out for me right now I can't remember if he said it or if someone else commented that they said that the color line was washed away in the blood of Jesus at Azusa Street and they were saying that of the Azusa Street revival um which of course again was was William Seymour but for me the the thing that that stands out to me as you talk about as you talk about Fred Price the thing that that stands out for me in this is that the issue of race and the issue of racism and even some of just just down to the the race mixing and all this other type of stuff that started that was something that was that was seeded in this movement very very early something that again one of my pet one of my theological not theological historical um pet peeves and hobby horses here is that there's a dude named um charles parham that white pentecostals will mentioned yes. alongside yes. William Seymour. And they've they've mentioned him as kind of like you know, the, the first, the biggest, the whatever, the whatever guy to the erasure of William Seymour. Um, but this guy was was extremely racist. Seymour learned under him um, in Louisiana, I believe it was, but he had to sit outside the classroom and listen because he wasn't allowed to be inside the classroom. So but but Seymour, you know, saw him as a teacher, saw him, I think, in some ways as a as a father in the faith. Well whenever Parham shows up to the Azusa Street revival, he's mad because of the race mixing and he says a whole bunch of racist stuff because of what he of what he saw and he he left azusa angry but white pentecostals try to throw him in there and oh he was at azusa street no whatever and erase william seymour and all this but this but i say all this to say that these issues that 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 we're talking about that we're still dealing with started at the beginning of of our movement yet within that there has always been and i think that that one of the misconceptions about pentecostals is that oh you know we're 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 soft on race we're soft on 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 this topic i think that the approach some yes yeah, some of it is really just legitimately people being miseducated and mm-hmm. and kind of and there's there are there is a lot of sunken place theology that takes place in these spaces and i don't want to deny that but i also want to say that i think that pentecostalism that black pentecostalism has always um had a wide tent in terms of whenever we start talking about um race and even and even class um but they've been able to always kind of um expand a, a build a wide tent and so you have black pentecostals that i think that they're that that just within the movement itself there's always been a heart to get back to what azusa was to, to be in even if it's not something that's necessarily overt overtly stated there's this idea of everybody needs the baptism of the spirit everybody needs mm-hmm. the holy spirit mm-hmm. in in their lives. And so there has been a willingness among black Pentecostals to do what to, to do whatever it looks like, essentially, um, to do whatever it takes to 
be in that space with multiple people, with 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 people that that are from different classes, people who are from different races, who are from um, different 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 ethnic backgrounds. And so I think that that's something that we that we also need to need to acknowledge. Um, in in that space of where I, I do think that there is that there is some tension because I do think that that we have um, a lot of theology coming out of the sunken place coming out of thinking um, coming out of a, a theology of of whiteness coming out of the theology of of well you know we're 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 a little bit lower we're a little bit whatever and we need and we need white people um, for those reasons so I, I think that that does happen but I also want to acknowledge that. This movement started out as a movement that was intended. Um, that this started out as a as a movement that that resulted in there being a crossing of the color line and there being f- friendships and fellowships and stuff um, birthed out of that. But unfortunately, um, it's largely been been white people that have decided to show out and to like uh, you know like, like our brother said. Um, standing standing next to somebody and they have a gun to your head and you don't and you don't realize it and so mm-hmm. that, that's that's mm-hmm. really something that's unfortunate about our movement yeah there's so much we could talk about so much we could say we're going to keep having this conversation but if you're a pentecostal or if you come from pentecostal denomination or tradition we want to hear from you we want to tell these stories and so reach out to us tag us email us whatever it takes because we're going to have this conversation about Pentecostal power throughout the year and how it shaped us. Everybody needs the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you need the Holy Spirit. And that's so important to our tradition, so important to our faith. And, you know, I hope you feel from this, whether you're Pentecostal or not, your tradition matters, where you come from matters, your faith matters, um, and even your story as well. So again, we must, as Black Christians, tell our own stories. If we do not, who will? So I hope this encourages you. We'll catch you next time right here on Pass the Mic. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.